morning we continue our journey through the royal reign of David uh, that is depicted in the book of 2 Samuel. And really, chapter 10 that we're looking at today serves as kind of the second part of the story that we told last week, the story of David's kindness to Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth. Uh, moving from shame to being a son, sitting at the table of the king forever. And we'll see the same kind of offer of kindness today, but received in a very, uh, very different kind of way. So, before we start, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you expected one result, but you got something very, very different than you expected? Right? Or have you, have you ever, perhaps it's been you, have you ever... Uh, engaged in a conversation, engaged in a relationship, whatever it was, and you, your intention was one way, but the person received it a completely different way. Have you ever done that? So, Rachel and I spent one year in Chicago. Uh, love Chicago. Just an awesome, awesome city, an awesome area. And there's lots of things, though, about Chicago that are somewhat frustrating. And one of, I don't know if it's still true, but one of them was the road system around Chicago. In the Midwest, they say that all roads lead to Chicago, and what I would add to that is everyone is on the roads that lead to Chicago. It's, it's a completely frustrating reality. It's gridlocked, and for whatever reason, on their major roads, their toll roads, instead of just having tolls at the exits like we do here in Pennsylvania, they would just put toll booths in the middle of the road as you're going along. Uh, and they'd have those ridiculous baskets there on them. You know what I'm talking about? The exact change baskets, uh, which when we lived there in 2003 were outdated, and we can only imagine what it's like now. And so uh, not really knowing any of this reality, I was driving uh, to seminary. I was going to grad school out there, and I was driving there the first, the, for my first day, and all of a sudden we come to this gridlock, just utter gridlock, and we're there and it's barely moving, barely moving. And finally in the distance, I can see that the reason the traffic is so jammed up is it's because these toll booths are there. And I'm wondering what's going on. And as we're approaching them, I see that they're exact change only big basket toll booths right in the middle of the major interstate there. And I begin to have these thoughts in my mind. Uh, one is, I don't have any money, Right? And even if I did, I certainly don't have exact change in coins to deposit in a giant basket. This is bizarre behavior, right? And so as I'm approaching it, I'm trying to formulate a plan. What am I going to do? And and my initial plan from a distance is I'm just going to go right through, right? Because what else are you going to do? You know, there's nothing else you can do. Uh, But you know how the story goes. They have those giant gates there, right? So you can't get through. So by the time I'm there, I literally... And parked at this gate, and I'm sitting there thinking, what on earth am I ever going to do? And the cars are lining up behind me, and in my expression, I'm thinking, oh no, in the, if this, something like this were to happen in the Northeast, friends, right, what happens if you're that person? You know, uh, not good. And so all of a sudden, I see a giant man get out of his car, two, two cars behind me. He was a huge man, so tall and intimidating, and he was coming up. He was approaching me from behind, and I'm starting to figure out, okay, new plan, forget about coins, new plan is how do I preserve my life in this situation, right? 
Because if I lock the doors, I'm not sure he's not going to just put his fist right through the window and, you know, do whatever he needs to do to get me out of the way so he can move through. And he comes up and he knocks on my window. And so you have that moment, right? Has anyone ever knocked on your window? Probably not because you don't find yourself in these situations. And you're thinking, do I pretend like I can't hear this man? (laughs) Or do I roll the window down and experience possible death? So, So I rolled the window down, ready to plead for my life. And he said to me, don't you have any money? And I said, no. And he held out his hand full of coins and said, here you go. And tossed them in the basket and walked back to his car, smiling and whistling as he went. And friends, I was introduced to the Midwest, which is a whole different world than the Northeast, right? (laughs) And so my perception of this whole situation was completely different than you could have ever expected. And what we'll find out here is uh, somewhat of the same thing happening. David approaches a foreign kingdom. He has one intention, but the kingdom receives it in a very different way. 2 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1 is where we are at. 2 Samuel 10, verse 1. This is what the storyteller writes. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. And David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys. He shaved off half of each man's beards, cut off the garments at their buttocks, and sent them away. And when David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then come back. We'll pause there. We'll pick up the story in a minute. So here we have very similar language to the language we heard last week in how David engaged Mephibosheth. It's the word kindness. Did you hear it again? Is the exact same Hebrew word, hesed. It's this covenant, loving kindness. David is now attempting to show it to the Ammonites and their king. Uh, scholars believe that perhaps the Ammonites had helped David when he was fleeing from Saul. We don't know exactly where that is. That's not recorded for us. But somehow these people had shown David kindness, and now he's attempting to show kindness back to them. What I would suggest to you is it's beyond even what David had attempted to do in repaying their kindness. I think this is the natural outcome of the Abrahamic covenant. We've been talking about covenants through this whole storyline. And the Abrahamic covenant is kind of the big one that happens in Genesis 12. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how uh, filling all the land that God had promised kind of brought this covenant to its fulfillment receiving the blessing that God had promised, that the land would be theirs, that from Abraham would come a giant nation, and from Abraham would come kings who would rule over that nation. All of this blessing of God had been received. And then there's that one little verse or little phrase at the end of the Abrahamic covenant that says, 
And in so much as God has blessed you, you will be a blessing to all the people of the world. And so what we have here is certainly somehow David kind of speaking covenant language to someone who has helped him, but also the beginning of the reality of the kingdom of God, that they are not just there for their own internal protection, but to actually be a blessing to all the peoples of the world. So the Ammonites are east of the Jordan River. They are not part of the land that was promised. And yet David is trying to show them blessing and kindness and trying to extend to them a relationship and peace and so forth and so on. Instead, they see him as a threat, as danger, as what is this guy here to do? And the Ammonites in Hanan, instead of receiving the grace of the king, God's anointed king, instead misinterpret exactly what David is trying to do. And based on their misinterpretation, actually exact penalty or or pain and, quite frankly, um, shame on the envoy's of David. Now, isn't it fascinating that there are two things that lead into this decision for this king, King Hanan? Instead of believing the relationship that God had had with his, or excuse me, that David had had with his father, he instead listens to the counsel of those who are around him instead of believing the covenant that his father had made with David. And so he's given to the advice of the counselors who twist the intentions of David to better serve them. And at the core, Hanun's sort of rejection of David's offer of grace and, and friendship really is about kind of showing power in and of himself, right? Like, I don't need you, I'm powerful. I'm self-sustenant. I've got powerful friends, as we'll see in a minute. And, and that's part of the reason that you have this shaming of the men who come from David. Now tell me if you don't hear echoes in this storyline all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. When rebellion against God's rule which is represented by David in this story, happens in two distinct ways. Listening to the wrong voice, the voice of the serpent, who is whispering things that twist the intentionality of God. Remember? Did God really say you couldn't eat from anything? Well, no, that's not what God said. But also rooted in Adam and Eve's desire for power and self Rule, right? Because what does the serpent whisper to them? He really doesn't want you to eat from the tree because if you do, he knows you'll be like him. In other words, that you'll have authority and rule in your own life. And in it, and in this story, we see the common pattern of the rebellious nature of humanity that is rooted in listening to the wrong voices. Oh, by the way, many times which are not external to ourself. We have our own voice inside us. It's called, uh, it's what Paul calls in the New Testament, the sarks, the flesh, that speaks just as disingenuously to us. Instead of listening to the voice of our Creator who's offering grace and kind of pushing out our chest and standing up and saying, I don't need help from the outside. 
I've got this all together. Now, this is exactly the opposite of the story we just heard last week. When Mephibosheth comes and says what? I am a dead dog, right? I'm desperate for help. I understand that I am in need. Instead, Hanan, the king of the Ammonites, says, I don't need anything. I'm just fine. And in so doing, rejects the grace of God. Friends, I need to remind you that when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, that it is completely true. That we often, even as followers of Jesus, reject the good news of God's grace because we are listening to the wrong voices and because we are attempting to exert our own self-sustenance, our own self-will, our own power, our own authority. And always that gets us into a bad space, right? It doesn't always end up with dudes running around with half beards and garments cut off right here at the waist, right? But it gets us into some serious trouble, right? Can we summarize it that way? And what I want us to see in this is that there is a very different way to respond to God's offer of grace and, quite frankly, his offer of rule, right, and reign. There is a Mephibosheth kind of way And there is a Hanan kind of way. And Hanan, of course, exacts unthinkable embarrassment and shame on these men. I mean, to be Hebrew and to have your beard half shaved was to be emasculated, right? And then, as if almost kind of in a humorous way to him, a sick kind of humor, he exposes their masculinity while emasculating them. Uh, in a Jewish context. So much to say, you're nothing. Instead of Mephibosheth coming and admitting he's shame and needs a new name, this man says, I don't need God's grace, and in fact exacts shame on God's messenger. I think of Jesus when he tells the parable, a member of the vineyard, And the owner of the vineyard builds this vineyard, and then he goes away, and he rents it out to these people. And when he comes time for the harvest, he comes back for the harvest, and to gather it, he sends his envoys for the harvest, his messengers, his ambassadors to receive the harvest, and the people scorn them. The people who are renting the land, they scorn them, they embarrass them, they shame them, they kill them, they stone them. And so the owner of the vineyard says, well, surely if I send my son... They will receive him. But the parable says, when he sent his son, they did to him far greater. And it should be no surprise to us that when Jesus shows up on the scene, gentle yet as God's anointed, humanity says, no thank you. And then on the cross, what? Rips him of his garments and auctions them off to the highest bidder. Completely ashamed in its rejection. There's two ways to respond to God's gracious offer of hesed. 
You know, what's fascinating to me, it's a little line in the story, is that when these ambassadors, these envoys, these messengers from David experience this utter shame, David sends people out to meet them before they have to come back into their town and demonstrate their shame to the people. And David says, stay here in Jericho. He says, let your beard regrow. And we might look at that and think, well, that's bizarre. But what he's saying is, regain who you are, right? Be restored and then come back in. You have a king who's dealing graciously with those who have been obedient to his call and is willing to give them the space to be restored and healed for the pain that's been inflicted upon them by what appears to be enemies. A fascinating story. And so the storyteller continues, because the story continues. And this is what he says in verse 6. When the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, um, do you know what the word obnoxious means in Hebrew? It's kind of funny. Means they realized that, that they had begun to smell really bad to David, right? In other words, like when they realized that they shouldn't have taken their shoes off at the dinner party or whatever, David, they realize, oh shoot, I'm not sure what we did here, and we could be in a whole peck of trouble. They began to hire mercenaries. They hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rohab and from Zobah, as well as the king of, of Mekah with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. And so they build this army, this big show of power. Look at us. Look what we can do. And on hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate. While the Arameans of Zobah and Rohab and the men of Tob and Mekah were by themselves in the open country, Joab saw that there, where their battle lines were in front of him and behind them, so he selected some of his best troops in Israel, and he deployed them against the Arameans. And he put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. And Joab said, If the Arameans are too strong for me... Then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to your rescue. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. So once again, the story is quick to tell us that it is the enemies of David who are rising up in battle formation against him. And David responds by sending his commander, Joab, out with the fighting men of Israel. And a battle is about to ensue because of some half beards and garments cut halfway around. And all of this could have been avoided if they had received a gracious offer from a neighboring king. And as Joab begins to look at the battlefield, he sees that he's in trouble. He realizes that the Ammonites are on one side of him and the Arameans are on the other side of him. And he's about to be squashed in the middle. And so I don't know, I don't know anything about military stuff, but I'm assuming this is a good battle plan. Joab decides what I'm going to do is I'm going to split the army in half. 
And he takes his brother and he puts him in command over half the army that's going to fight the Ammonites on one side. And he takes command over the other half of the army who's going to fight the Arameans on the other side. And he says, listen, if the battle's not going good for you, I'll help you. And if the battle's not going good for me, then you help me. And oh, by the way, we can't be sure how any of this is going to turn out. But what we can know is that God is good. And that in this, somehow his goodness will be brought forth for his people and for the world. Let me tell you something, church. This is not a battle that David or the Israelites set out to fight. And yet, they find themselves right in the thick of one of the most dangerous situations they could ever be in. Can you relate to that? Have you experienced significant battles in your life? Be it with sin, be it with health, be it relationally, be it vocationally, that you did not choose, that you did not have any effect in entering into, and yet it is about to consume you. And as you look at it all around, you think, we have no chance to quote-unquote win this battle. And there are two things in the midst of a fight like that that I need you to know. And the first is that you've got to trust your army. I love the picture of Joab delegating to Abishai half the army and saying, listen, things might go good in the north and bad in the south. If that happens, we're going to need some more men in the south. Things might go bad in the north and good in the south. If that happens, we're going to need some of your men in the north. And in that, I have, it comes to me without hindrance, this beautiful picture of how the church is supposed to operate in the world. How when there are those in our midst who are going through crisis, who are going through unexpected battles, who are struggling to the core there should be that many more who on their fronts are able to turn and pivot and engage the battle that their comrades are in. And if that is happening, then that is exactly the attention that God has for His church. But two things are true in the midst of that, or two things are necessities in the midst of that, right? The first is that you've got to have friends who are willing to fight for you. And the second, and though you might think the first one is the hardest, I want to tell you the second is actually the hardest. You've got to be willing to ask your friends to fight with you, right? And for many of us, especially as pull yourself up by your bootstraps, American, modern, evangelical Christians, we believe we have the first, and yet we never call them into action on our behalf. And it is to our own defeat that we don't do it. And so church, if the leader of the army of the people of God can say, I might need you on the north side, and you might need me on the south side, and oh, by the way, we're not even sure we're going to win on the north or the south then how much more as are, can we as a church believe 
that we're called to battle side by side, that we're called to engage the enemy on behalf of each other, that it's okay and right for you to say, I might need help with the Ammonites if things are going okay with the Arameans. Or for your friend to say, I might need help with the Arameans if things are going okay with the Ammonites. Jesus, when he established the church, never intended it to fight battles in isolation. And yet that is our oftentimes chosen modus operandi. And it almost always ends in defeat. So if you find yourself in the throes of it, would you be willing to ask your brothers and your sisters for help? And church, do you believe that when God speaks to the people of God, He speaks to us in a corporate way, not just a personal way, so much so that the battle, the person next to you, behind you, in front of you, to your left, right, wherever, is fighting is just as critical as the one that you may fight, have fought, or are fighting. That we owe it to our King, Jesus, to engage in each other's struggles. This is the call of Christian community. This is why the New Testament is littered with all those phrases that kind of have these two words, one another, in them. This is why the church is supposed to know what it's like to grieve with each other and to celebrate victory with each other. If this is not part of who we are, then we're missing so much and so many possibilities of victory in the battle that lies ahead of us. So if you're in the midst of it, the first thing I would say to you is you've got to lean on the rest of the army. And the second thing is you've got to remind yourself and you've got to trust that God truly is good. Trust me, I know that when you're in the midst of it, when things at work are at their worst, when you are having such relational strife that you're not sure how to move forward, when you're in the throes of a significant diagnosis or the absence of a diagnosis, when your world seems to be caving in around you, it is oftentimes hard to believe that God is good. So how on earth could Joab make a statement like he made? He had to have cemented himself in the reality and belief of the goodness of God long before the battle emerged. The same way as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, hey, listen, we're not going to eat this stuff the Babylonian king puts before us, and we believe that our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, that's okay. Because there's this utter trust in the goodness of God that supersedes the momentary realities. And so what I'm telling you now is that you have to be building a reliance on the goodness of God into your life so that when the crisis strikes, you are able to be grounded enough to say something like this. I don't know what's going on, but there are two things that I know. One is that God is in this, 
And two is that God is good. How that concludes, I'm not always sure. And so in the midst of this crisis, this is what he says. He says, I need the help of my army, and I'm trusting in the goodness of God. And then, friends, he does something radical that seems pretty unspiritual. He fights, right? For many of us, the spiritual life is so consumed to the esoteric mental realities of, well, God is good, and God will just do what he needs to do. He said that, and then he fought. And so I would say to you, the third thing is true in the midst of significant struggle, that you need the help of your brothers and your sisters in your army. And that you need to trust and remind yourself of the goodness of God. And then you need to move in faith on the belief of both of the first two things. Now what happens in this story is not necessarily what's always going to happen, but let me keep reading to you what's going on in this story. Verse 13, Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. And after the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. And Hadadezar, who was one of the kings of the Aramean people, had Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. I mean, this is far away. And they went to Helam with, with Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. The, the picture of this story is not going to give it to you. This is a huge gathering of troops at this place called Helam, east of the Sea of Galilee. And when David was told of this, he gathered all of, <clears throat> excuse me, all of Israel. He crossed the Jordan. He went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David, and they fought against him. But they fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. And he struck down Shobak, <clears throat> excuse me, the commander of their army, and he died there. <clears throat> and when all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been routed by Israel... They made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. It all leads to this one consequential battle at Helam. And in utter stunning fashion, the Israelites once again are victorious. And it draws to mind the words of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 2, when he says, why do the nations conspire against God's anointed king in the opening verses of Psalm 2? And then at the end, he says, listen, kings, be wise, submit to his rule or destruction will come, but blessing for all who receive him. <clears throat> and so we're presented with a third option here. Did you notice it? We have Mephibosheth, who receives the grace of God right away. We have the Ammonites, who spit on God's offer of grace. And then we have the Arameans, who struggle and wrestle and fight and fight and fight. But at the end of the story, submit to God. And what happens to them? They're received with peace. Peace. 
You see it? And so there are three means by which we can respond to the grace of God. And what I would suggest to you is that your experience of life is directly related to the means by which you submit to God's rule and reign in your life, to his offer of hesed. We have in Mephibosheth a man who receives it and sits at the table of the king for the rest of his life. We have in the Arameans a king, Hadadezar, who fights and fights and fights and struggles and struggles and battles and battles and loses and loses and loses, but ultimately experiences peace and a connection with a king. And we have in the Ammonites at the end of the story, people who are back in their walled cities, never experiencing the peace and the hesed of the kingdom of God. And in these two chapters, I think as readers of the story, we are offered a look at what we do with a God who is defined by kindness, by covenant kindness, by hesed. Will we be honest about who we are and in so doing receive the loving kindness of God? that leads to the fullness of life that he offers? Or will we flat out reject it and spit on it and in so doing live in walled cities and never experience the freedom we sang about earlier or the life that God offers? Or will we, and I would suggest to you, most of us are going to fall into this third category, engage in significant or momentary warfare, as it were, with the reign of God and only experiencing peace in moments and pockets. Do you see the difference? Who gets to be king in your life? Who gets to have reign and rule? Who is God's anointed And what is your response to it? Hey, at the end of the day, David is representative of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate David. He is God's anointed. He is the means by which God is showing his kindness to the world. Remember that very famous verse in John chapter 3? For God, what? So loved the what? The Israelites? The couple people, he so loved the world that he did what? That he sent his son. That Jesus' arrival to offer peace to the world is in the same way that God was offering peace to the surrounding kingdoms of Israel. And the world all far too often responds by bringing shame on God's offer of peace. But in the same way that there was a stunning victory at Helam, there also was a stunning victory at Calvary. Where in laying down his life, Jesus was able to win the final battle, the final great victory over all the evil and the enemies of God in this world. 
that Paul can rightfully say that Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is not a first and a last name, right? We've talked about this before. Christ means anointed one. It's the same word used of David. It means that he is king. King Jesus is the right translation of Jesus Christ. That he is Lord and that there is coming a day when those, listen, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Ammonites, Arameans, and Mephibosheths will bow down before Jesus and tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That the final victory is His. And if you believe this is true, then there are two things I want you to remember as you go. The first is that you can be certain of God's goodness in your life. That you can agree with Paul when he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8 that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Paul would tell you from firsthand experience that did not necessarily mean God was working all things together as Paul wanted them or without pain or without struggle, but definitely for his good. Friends, if you're in the throes of it, if you believe that Jesus through his death and resurrection has assured a victory in the finality of things, then you can trust the goodness of of God. And also, in so much as you can be certain of God's goodness, you must remember that you are called as his ambassadors. Now, we just read a story about some not so good things that happened to some ambassadors of the king, right? And Paul knows what he's doing when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God is reconciling the whole, there's the word again, world to himself. And that he's forgiving sins of all peoples. And that he has entrusted, listen, this message of reconciliation, Paul says, to us. That we are ambassadors of Christ. So will Bethlehem or Nazareth or Whitehall or Allentown or Easton, or any other part of this valley into the ends of the earth? Will they be more Hanun, Hadadezer, or Mephibosheth? No promises are made. But you can be certain that God has sent you as his ambassadors to all the places where your life takes you. To your work, to your family, to your neighborhood, to your circle of friends and your spheres of influence. And as you go, you can know that the forward move of the kingdom of God is always met with the resistance of the enemies of God. And sometimes your beard's going to get half shaved off. I was talking to Pastor Jim from Nazareth, and he suggested I shave half my beard as a great object lesson. I didn't have that kind of confidence. I certainly wasn't cutting my garment at the halfway point. <laughs> Sometimes your garment's going to get cut at the halfway point. Sometimes you're going to take nicks, and sometimes you're going to get cut. And a whole lot of the time, you're going to need the rest of the army to go with you. But you can be certain of your calling, and you can be certain of a God who meets you and says, hang here in Jericho and be restored 
and be brought back to health. You carry in you the message that God is intending to reconcile this whole cosmos. That is a word beyond just people, right? Systems, structures, pockets, thought, art, science, math, government, oh my gosh, to himself. And we, Paul will write elsewhere, have been entrusted with his message in jars of clay, right? The idea not just that it's not so special, but also that it gets broken. So as you go, I'll speak for the whole church. We go with you, but I'll speak for me. If you need me to help you battle the Ammonites, I'm here for you. And when I need you to help me battle the Arameans, I'm going to call on you. Deal? Let's pray.